Talk Post podcast, in which Professor Post discusses a variety of national security topics. Professor Post is an assistant director of the Chicago Projects on Security and Threats, or CPOST, and the author of three books, The Economics of War, Organizing Democracy, and Arguing About Alliances. You can follow him on Twitter at Prof. Paul Post. A lot of the stuff in the news at the moment with international politics is talk of a global ceasefire, but not everyone seems to be buying into the idea. Barry Buzan in a recent foreign affairs article talked about the pandemic piece and about the possibility that this global pandemic, at least in the short term, and he also goes on to say possibly in the medium term, though you know, long term we can talk about later, could bring about peace. And and what's the rationale behind that? Well, most straightforward the rationale is that if soldiers are getting sick and well, if soldiers are getting sick, then they can't fight. I mean, it's really that simple. And in fact, you even heard Donald Trump make quite inaccurately, but he made a comment along these lines regarding the end of World War One, saying that the the nineteen eighteen flu actually sped up the ending of World War One because troops were sick and they couldn't fight. Now, that's not supported by the best evidence that we have that's not supported by historical accounts that's not supported really in any way but nevertheless that's the idea and barry buzan kind of takes this idea to say well could that also apply to a variety of global conflicts both within countries such as say the syrian conflict libya yemen but also with respect to international tensions could this actually bring about at least in the short term a a piece. There's several arguments against it. First of all, and this relates back to some things we've talked about already on the podcast about the difficulties of international cooperation. One of the main ways that we've witnessed this difficulty in international cooperation has been at the UN Security Council, where the UN Security Council has actually, over the past two months, tried to pass a resolution that would call for a ceasefire. And they've been unable to pass this resolution due to infighting largely between the United States and China over the wording of it. Of course, this leads to the next question, which is even if the UN Security Council passes such a ceasefire, what what effect does that have other than calling for it? Are they going to actually impose measures, punitive measures to enforce it? So that's one reason to say it's not quite clear that there's actually the, I hate to use this phrase, but the political will to actually bring about such a ceasefire. Um, But the other reason is it's on the one hand, you could see where the disease could have this effect of influencing troops and causing troops to be sick, but there's not really evidence that that's dramatically changing strategy. If anything, you're just seeing militaries shift resources. The most extreme example of this is the USS Roosevelt, where the Roosevelt, of course, well known for having most of its sailors get sick, contract COVID-19, and this led to huge dispute and civil military relations about the firing of the Admiral, and et cetera, et cetera. But what was interesting is when the Roosevelt, that aircraft carrier group, went out of commission, on the one hand, that that would actually created a gap for the U.S.'s carrier plan, if you will, global plan in terms of where carrier groups should be located and how they should be operating. And so what the U.S. 
government had to do was recalibrate. They had to reposition. They had to call up troops sooner who maybe would have been on leave or, excuse me, sailors who would have been on leave. And so there was adjustments made. And you're seeing this at lower levels. Again, I kind of use the Roosevelt as like an extreme example. But you're seeing this at lower levels where, yes, COVID-19 could actually create illnesses amongst, say, rebel groups. But you're seeing where they're adjusting to this. And so it's not clear that this disease is actually going to bring about the kind of peace that someone like a Barry Buzan was calling for in his foreign affairs piece. Well, then what what's the moving forward? I mean, you, if we look at it in the medium term and long term, does that picture change at all? So give me one second to pull up something here. So, and actually just real quick question. Uh, are you picking up anything in the background? Uh, like any noises or anything on my end? No, I don't think you need to throttle the kids just yet. Okay, good, good. <laughs> just check it on that. Cause there was a few noises and I was like it was a little distracted. I was like, Oh no, is that going to be picking up uh, noise or anything like that? Um, and so, yeah, so let's go ahead and let's think about then the medium term, long term here. So the and let me just refresh my memory on what I want to say here before we before we say it. Yeah, that's the great thing about radio. It's not like television. Oh, yeah. No, I can't. I can't. I can't. You know, we can edit all this out. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. My goodness, he remembers a lot of stuff, doesn't he? <laughs> It's like on, part of on, my, on West uh, Wing. Yeah, yeah the, part the, of my the snappy dialogue. Yeah. yeah, no, this is cool. Um, yeah, so I mean, part of my medium term was just kind of actually, I guess my medium term point was that I brought up in the thread was it was about the USS Roosevelt. Um, so we can just jump to like kind of long term. Okay. So okay, um, yeah, good. so let's do that. Okay, um, okay so, let, let me re-ask the question. Yeah. That, that more or less uh, covers us for, say, the short to medium term. What what does long term look like? Long term, this is where, you know, like anything, <laughs> the fu- prediction is hard, especially about the future, right? And in this case, the, there actually, I think there's a little bit more of a there there, but I'm not sure it's going to translate into peace. So what do I mean by there being more of a there there? Well, one thing that you've you're starting to see is you are starting to see a reassessment by a lot of commentators, say, in the defense space, as well as even policymakers about well, what is the proper allocation of spending? How should how should we be conceptualizing threats? And then how should we be allocating resources to these threats? And I mean, to make this very clear, if you have a budget of the size, a defense budget of the size of the U.S. government, say $700 billion, can you afford to take a portion of that and allocate it towards pandemic prevention, right? And and the bang for the buck in terms of overall well-being could be quite high. Well, if you carry that argument far enough, what you're starting to see is within the U.S. government, um, you're seeing this within European governments because, of course, Europe has been hit very hard by COVID-19. You're starting to see a, a reassessment of how should, quote, defense, and the reason why I say, quote, defense spending, because it's about what do you conceive of as a threat, 
but how should defense spending be allocated? And so that's where you could start to see a longer term implication is you could see governments reallocating some resources away from defense spending or at least traditional defense spending and more towards pandemic prevention. Now, this has spillover effects into other areas. Um, most notably, say, NATO. So let's take NATO. Now, previously on this podcast, we've talked about how NATO has actually been taking a lot of steps towards responding to COVID-19. Well, if NATO continued down that path, could that lead to a more fundamental reconceptualizing of what NATO is about? But also, and in line with the defense spending, if governments start cutting back on traditional defense spending in order to reallocate resources towards pandemic prevention, could that lead them to to not meet the targets that have been set for NATO defense spending. That, to be blunt, that these governments should be spending 2% of their GDP on defense. Well, if they're cutting back defense spending in order to reallocate to pandemic prevention, does that mean they're no longer meeting these criteria? And if they're not, if they're not meeting that target, does that in turn reinforce complaints by, say, the United States that these countries are free riding on defense? So that's where you could see a longer term impact of a pandemic, any pandemic, but especially this pandemic is if governments take it seriously enough and take the need to respond to it seriously seriously enough, they could reallocate defense spending in such a way that that could have more profound long-term implication. Having said all that, what would reduced defense spending mean for peace? Now, on the one hand, you could say, well, if governments aren't spending as much on defense, then that means they don't have as many weapons, make troops, and so there's less probability for fighting. On the other hand, you you could say, well, no, maybe there could be more violence because if governments are not equipping themselves adequately, they're not deterring threats. And so as a result, that could create more opportunities for aggression. Take, for example, keeping with, I should say, keeping with Europe, what if the European countries continue to reduce their defense spending? Could that give Russia an impetus to want to be more aggressive towards, say, Ukraine, even more so than they are now, or towards the Baltic states. So that's the type of consequence that could occur from reduced defense spending in response to COVID-19. So the long-term implications, going back to what I said at the beginning, is, are unclear. But I wouldn't be so bold as to say that it means necessarily that there's going to be peace. Let's go to the other end of the scale. The, 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 there are people talking about peace, but the, China's foreign minister is now accusing some political forces in the U.S. of hijacking the China-U.S. relations and pushing the two countries, the United States and, and China, to a new Cold War. Is that also a potential outcome from the pandemic? I think this is a great question. And it's really when I was writing about the prospects of a pandemic peace, when I was writing my Twitter thread on that and engaging on that Twitter, I didn't really bring up this kind of this, this angle to it, even though it's an angle that I've brought up in other contexts about, well, could heightened tensions by between the US and China, heightened tensions driven by COVID-19, could that make the world more dangerous and hence go against this argument of a pandemic peace? And I mean, the short answer is yes, it can. Anytime that major powers are in rivalry with each other, anytime there's tension between major powers, there is the prospect for conflict. And so in that sense, if you want to think about the possibility of how COVID-19 could affect relations between the U.S. and China? Could it bring about a new Cold War? Could it be the cause of heightened tensions between these powers? Then in that respect, COVID-19 is not a source of peace. 
Now, having said all that, part of the reason why I didn't bring it up when talking about this topic was because a point that I've been making quite a bit when thinking about the political implications of COVID-19 is that the U.S. and China rivalry was on full display well before COVID-19 came about. COVID-19 has maybe heightened it. It's maybe accelerated the tensions between the countries. It's maybe created a new dimension on which they could have tensions. It's not just trade. It's not just the South China Sea. It's now about pandemic response and the WHO. But there was already a lot of commentary about a new Cold War between the U.S. and China well before COVID-19. And so maybe COVID-19 just gives us another reason to kind of look at potential Cold War between the U.S. and China, but that was already there. So again, if you want to isolate the question of does COVID-19 promote peace or promote conflict, if you want to focus on that question, the U.S.-China rivalry is not really the best way to approach it because, again, that rivalry was already there and already brewing prior to COVID-19. But it's now being brought up by the Chinese themselves. I mean, obviously, we've got arguments brewing or, or occurring over Hong Kong. Has it previously been Hong Kong? place to talk about a Cold War? I was thinking about Hong Kong the other day because, uh, well, I think a lot of people were thinking about Hong Kong the other day because of the new policies that the uh, Chinese government, that Beijing is going to be putting in place that's going to further constrain Hong Kong's autonomy. But if you recall, there were tensions about Hong Kong prior, again, prior to COVID-19. There were the protests over extradition law, <laughs> and this was most notable in the United States by the whole dispute between the Chinese government and the National Basketball Association, where the front office person of, I can't remember his name, but he was a front office member of the Houston Rockets, had sent out a pro-democracy tweet regarding Hong Kong that immediately led to this huge spat between the Chinese government and the NBA. The Chinese government canceled events, wouldn't allow the NBA to be televised in China. Um, and the NBA tried to soft pedal the thing rather than taking a, a hard stand in defense of free speech, say with the individual who made the tweet, they were trying to appease the Chinese government. But I just bring that up to say that Hong Kong was already a flashpoint of tension between the U.S. and China prior to COVID-19. Now, I think some observers think that the reason why the Chinese government is pushing these new policies now is because of COVID-19, that they say, well, the world is a bit distracted by COVID-19, so now's the time that we could try to put in place these new policies vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong, and then hence end what people are, you know, have traditionally called the one country, two systems uh, model. But again, I would say that Hong Kong was already a flashpoint prior to COVID-19. If anything, COVID-19 has sped up a process that, in my view, was going on anyhow. And, and we may have eventually have reached a point of heightened tension regarding Hong Kong. The Chinese government may have eventually enacted this policy anyhow, but it might have been in 2021. It might have been in 2022. COVID-19 gives them an opportunity to do it now. Again, if that's your interpretation of why the Chinese government is pursuing this policy. More broadly, though, is, you know, you could think about, you know, and I've been trying to think about to what extent this analogy is appropriate, but could Hong Kong be to this Cold War? And big caveat, I'm not sure using the phrase Cold War is the best way to describe U.S.-Chinese tension. But keeping with that phrase, could Hong Kong be to this Cold War what Germany was to the previous Cold War, right? Right that it was really this 
the key point of tension between the two superpowers was the kind of the fate of Germany. And, you know, obviously in that case, it was a little bit different because they had sovereign control over pieces of it. But still, that was the critical flashpoint was the status of Germany and long-term status of Germany. And in this way, you could view Hong Kong as encapsulating that for this Cold War. But again, these tensions were there prior to COVID-19. COVID-19 has maybe sped up the process, but it didn't change the fundamentals of the process. China's grand strategy has tended to be the Silk Seas, the Silk Road, massive investment into transportation and communications infrastructure. When you're engaging with a country that has a strategy like that, what exactly does a Cold War look like? This question you raise is about the, what's been called One Belt, One Road, or Belt and Road Initiative that the Chinese government has been pursuing. And COVID-19 has some implications for it. But yeah, I think it's really something worth talking about, kind of to your question, is almost independent of thinking about the, the COVID-19 implications that some people, some commentators have viewed this as, is this the Chinese grand strategy? Is this the model that they're going to be using for an alternative international order. Um, I've even made the phrase that, especially a couple of years ago, when the whole debate about the liberal international order was very hot about, you know, is the liberal international order good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent? Should we be preserving it? And people were referring to the LIO, liberal international order. And I was saying, well, is China trying to create the B-R-I-O, the BRIO, the, the Belt and Road Initiative order, right? Is this their alternative to it? And there is some merit to that in that where you've seen the Chinese government pursue its investment projects are in areas that, for lack of a better phrase, have been left largely untouched by the liberal international order. You see a lot of investments in Africa, for example, Central Asia. And these were regions where maybe at best the United States or other Western countries would have military bases set up. There was still some post-colonial relationships between, say, the French and the British in these countries, but by and large was not a focal point of their foreign policies, either economic or security-wise. And the Chinese government has, in contrast, made these countries a central part of this initiative of giving these investments, these loans uh, to these governments in Central Asia, Africa, um, as well as other um, locations. And in that sense, you could see that this is a way that the Chinese government is trying to gain influence with these countries and trying to bring these countries more in line with China than with the, quote, West, the United States and Europe. However, it's been shown by a lot of people who follow this very closely that this isn't necessarily, that the Belt and Road Initiative has not necessarily been the best way to make countries embrace China because these loans have to be paid back. Oftentimes they have punitive terms. There's concerns about these countries defaulting on these loans. There's concerns by the Chinese government of, or at least that these countries are going to feel like they're being exploited by the Chinese government in order to honor these loans. And so the Belt and Road Initiative could be seen as a way of China kind of trying to create the infrastructure of an alternative order, but it's early in the process. And what we've seen so far doesn't make it look like something that would actually make countries view China as a, quote, leader or a country that they would want to embrace long term. You mentioned earlier on the term Cold War. 
it's it's a it's handy shorthand for journalists and speech writers and soundbite merchants but does it have any real meaning in this setting i like that i like the way you phrase that about it has a this purchase for journalists and and yeah i mean people love using the cold war phrasing because it's it's something that for a lot of people we can draw on we we have familiarity with it some of us more familiarity, less familiarity, but I think a lot of people who are currently in kind of the foreign policy space or are tenured, say tenured faculty at universities can at least remember components of the 1980s during the Cold War. And so it's it's something that we can draw on and grab onto. But is it an appropriate analogy? You know, it might be the closest event that we have that we can grab onto, but is it the most appropriate analogy? And to me, I don't think the U.S.-Soviet rivalry, which is the more formal way of saying the Cold War, is really the appropriate analogy. The reason why is because, with the exception of Hong Kong, as I talked about, where maybe Hong Kong could be this flashpoint, there's not the same level of conflicting territorial control in place like there was during the Cold War. And so, for example, as I like to often say, the Cold War was basically just an extended ending to World War II. When World War II ended, you had the Soviet Union controlling the eastern part of Europe. You had the United States and its allies controlling the western part of Europe. And neither side wanted to really back down from what they had acquired at the end of the war. Obviously, this glasses over various nuances and so forth and about U.S. demobilizing, etc. But nevertheless, that's kind of a way to think about what the Cold War was, is that you had in Europe, you had territorial control by these two major powers, and neither one really wanted to give up that control, largely because they were afraid that the other would take advantage of them pulling back. You had the same thing in Asia, especially, or most notably, in the Korean Peninsula, where you had North Korea, largely dominated by the Soviet Union, and then you had South Korea, largely dominated by the West, the United States. And again, kind of a reluctance to withdraw, and that very much flashed up in the Korean War. You don't have that same type of territorial control issue with the rivalry between China and the United States. You have other issues. You have economic competition, which is another way to think about the Belt and Road Initiative compared to, say, U.S. policies of trade and the IMF and the World Bank. You could think about these as competition on the financial side. You could think about competition on the trade side. You can think about competition in terms of trade routes in South China Sea. You can think about it as trying to have influence or tensions between allies. And in fact, if anything, if there are territorial issues, it's not directly between the U.S. and the Soviets. It, it, there, there are territorial issues between, say, the China and Japan or China and India. But it's not at the same level as it was during the Cold War. And so... That's why I'm not sure that this is the best analogy. Because there's such a big economic component to it, I actually think the better analogy is between the United States and Britain at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. That, to me, I think is the better analogy. There was competition. They definitely viewed each other as rivals. They didn't like each other. They didn't necessarily trust each other. However, the British had invested a lot in the United States. They both benefited from trade with each other, but they were also both competing with each other for access to various markets, naval power. They were involved in a, in a naval race. This led to some of the naval treaties in the 1920s and 1930s. So 
In that sense, I actually think that's the better analogy is the U.S. and the British in the 19th century, early 20th century, rather than the Cold War itself between the U.S. and the Soviets. <laughs>